This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, in Fiji, a national apology to a family pushed into exile by the previous government. We apologize. We're sorry. You are ashamed for the way you and Professor Lau were treated. And ferries are some of the easiest ways to get around the islands, but could a greener option be on the horizon? Everything is transitioning very quickly to alternative fuels, methanol, biofuels, or, but mainly batteries. And we used to have blackbirding, an exploitative regi- regime that brought Pacific Islanders to work on Australian farms. Today we have a seasonal work program also bringing Pacific Islanders to work on Australian farms. So what's the difference and what are the similarities? We'll speak to a researcher asking that very question. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, Australian professor Bryce Barker has touched down in Queensland after being released from more than a week in captivity in Papua New Guinea. Professor Barker and three PNG colleagues were taken hostage in the country's highlands while undertaking field work in a remote area near Mount Posavi. Speaking at Wellcamp Airport, University of Southern Queensland Vice Chancellor Geraldine McKenzie says it's been a different time, difficult time, sorry, for everyone. We're so relieved that our friend and professor uh, was released, and uh, it's been a very long week since the incident happened a week ago. When we found out on Sunday that he was safe, it was the most enormous sense of relief that I think I've ever experienced in my life. It was an extraordinary feeling. That was University of Southern Queensland Vice-Chancellor Geraldine McKenzie. And for more on that hostage release, here's PNG's correspondent Natalie Whiting. There's been a lot of local people up on the ground in Mount Bosabi, both uh, missionaries who are based there and local villagers who've been helping with this, relaying information and messages. Uh, We know that Professor Barker uh, did have to make calls on his own satellite phone to missionaries initially to pass on demands from the kidnappers. Uh, So those sort of lines of communication uh, have been an issue at times because they have been in such a remote area. So there's been a a lot of negotiations happening. They came to a peak over the weekend. We saw the police commissioner actually fly up uh, to the centre near this remote area for the finalising of the negotiations. We understand some payments were made uh, to secure the safe relief a safe release, rather, of the hostages. Yeah. So, I mean, there's been that dispute because initially the Prime Minister said no money was paid, but at the end of the day, to make this a safe outcome, they did pay a ransom, but a very small amount, we understand. Yes, so initially uh, the Prime Minister, James Morape, uh, said that the 3.5 million kina, which was originally demanded, which is, um, you know, almost one and a half million Australian, he said that amount wasn't paid, uh, but some money uh, was handed over uh, to to ensure their safe release. Uh, Mr Morape has today said that, uh, you know, they had the option of engaging, that they uh, did have security services uh, personnel on the ground 
around, uh, but this was deemed the safest option to get the people out. Uh, and, and he's been saying that that security operation and tracking down these criminals is still ongoing. Yeah. So they don't they don't have them yet, but do they have a good idea as to who they are? Yes, even while the hostages were still in captivity, police had identified more than a dozen of the suspected 20 criminals. So they had pictures, they had names, they'd been contacting families. Uh, so they clearly have a good idea of who this is. And, and you know, members of this gang, we've since found out, have been terrorising uh, villages in this area for quite some time. So they are aware of who they are. And, and certainly now there's, there is a lot of pressure on uh, to find them and uh, to bring these criminals to justice so that it doesn't set a, a precedent uh, of kidnappings for ransom, which are relatively rare in PNG. Are the villagers around this area, though, still uh, concerned that th this gang might continue to terrorise them? They certainly are, Bev. And this area, it, as we've said, it is incredibly remote. There's no roads in, uh, and that obviously makes it difficult for service delivery and for things like policing. Uh, so we've been hearing from people on the ground uh, that, you know, this gang and others coming across from neighbouring Hella province into the Southern Highlands province, uh, you know, have been committing crimes and, and terrorising uh, villages in this area for some time. So... People there were already concerned, but now, especially since they've all assisted uh, authorities and the uh, the victims of this kidnapping, you know, lots of the villagers were were helping pass information and doing everything they could uh, to see this safe outcome. So, so they're now worried maybe there could be retribution or that the criminals could be emboldened. So that's a, a serious concern from on the ground. Uh, I put that to the police commissioner and to the prime minister, uh, and they both said they've taken those concerns on board uh, and that there would be an ongoing uh, security presence there to to make it safe for, for people. But the exact time frame around that um, isn't known. Yeah. And, you know, criminality, as we've talked about before, is a big issue for the PNG government. Um, do you think there is a will to try and improve some of these situations and to crack down on them? This is a huge issue, Bev. You know, this has shone a spotlight on what many Papua New Guineans uh, are encountering, you know, on a regular basis, particularly in these remote areas where it is very difficult logistically uh, to get police out there. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of people just raising concerns about levels of lawlessness in parts of the country. So certainly this is a huge issue. It is a difficult one uh, to address in some regards because of logistical issues. Um, Mr Marape, this is now becoming political for him as well. Uh, he has made the point that the police, uh, he says, are getting the, the highest amount of uh, an increase in funding uh, in his latest budget. And obviously this has also been a feature of discussions with Australia and the bilateral uh, security treaty. You know, there has been a, an el elements of that around policing and internal uh, security for PNG. So, look, this is a, a huge area. And, look, there... There are some things that could be done in the more immediate term uh, to start addressing this. Some of the issues are, you know, going to take longer, but certainly it is something that needs to be focused on here in PNG. Nat, appreciate the, the update. And uh, thankfully, um, of course, we have him home and uh, 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 this has ended it well in the end. Thank you so much. 
That's it, Bev. It's wonderful to see uh, both the professor and the three women who were working alongside him all safe. We're told they were uh, relatively unharmed. They weren't uh, attacked by their uh, kidnappers. So a good end to things in that regard. That was Natalie Whiting in Port Moresby speaking there with the ABC The World, Beverly O'Connor. Pacific Beat. Fiji's Prime Minister has apologised to the family of well-known academic Brujlal for what he says is cruel and inhumane treatment at the hands of the former government. Professor Lal, a vocal critic of the Bainimarama regime, was forced to leave the country in 2009 and never allowed to return. He died in Australia last year, but one of the first acts of the new Fijian government was to lift the travel ban so his wife could bring his ashes home. Liam Fox with this report. Since their exile, Padma Nasi Lal and her husband Bridge always hoped to return to Fiji, but not this way. In the 12 years of being in exile, not for one moment, Bridge and I had lost hope of returning. We remained optimistic. One day we said to ourselves, we will return to our country of birth, continue our respective research and continue to contribute in whatever little ways we can. All that time, we never ever considered that one of us may not be returning home without the other in person. Now she's back in Fiji to scatter her husband's ashes at the small cane-growing community of Tambia, where Professor Lal grew up. At a memorial service, Dr Nasi Lal recalled his last days in Fiji back in 2009. Bridge was arrested, taken into... Queen Elizabeth Barracks. At the barracks, Bridge was interrogated, subject to verbal violence, spat at and slapped by the then Commissioner of Police. With explosive anger, the Commissioner of Police forced Bridge to fly to Australia on the first flight out the next day, threatening that if he didn't, I, his wife, will have to go and collect him from the Silver Mall. In the lead-up to last year's election, Sitaveni Rambuka promised to lift the travel ban on the Lyles. It was a promise he fulfilled hours after being elected Prime Minister on the floor of Fiji's parliament, ending Frank Bainimarama's 16 years in power. To me, Professor Lal and Dr Mbanma were constant reminders of the oppression that bedeviled Fiji. The cruelest cut of all came when Professor Lal died a little over a year ago, when Dr. Parma applied to return to Fiji carrying his ashes, her requests were not, not even acknowledged. Even in death, there was no mercy. To applause from the crowd, he apologised to the Lals on behalf of the governments and people of Fiji. We apologise. We're sorry. We're ashamed of the way you and Professor Lal were treated and promise to you that during our term, such injustices will not be repeated. During the Bainimarama years, Biman Prasad was an opposition MP and he advocated ceaselessly for the Lals and the lifting of their travel ban. He's now the Deputy Prime Minister and told those at the memorial service their return to Fiji is hugely symbolic. Because it permanently buries oppression being endured for the last 16 years in this country. It is about justice being done to a couple and family 
that became the first Fiji-born citizens to be exiled from the land of their birth. Dr Nasi Lal held back tears as she thanked Mr Rambuka and Professor Prasad for their help. I know Bridge would feel or would have felt validated by the democratic outcomes of the elections, even if this came too late for him personally to return to his beloved homeland. And I know I will feel at peace knowing that I have fulfilled Bridge's last wishes of returning home. That was Dr. Padma Nasilal ending that report from Leon Fox. You're listening to Pacific Beat. Hope you're having a lovely Tuesday morning. Now to the north of Australia, where Tiwi Islanders and green groups are accusing gas company Santos of failing to disclose important environmental risks associated with its Barossa gas field and pipeline project. The development is local, located about 300 kilometres offshore from Darwin, but the company denies it held back any information at community, community consultations. Jane Barden has more. Tiwi elder Therese Wokai-Burke sat through a community consultation by gas company Santos at Melville Island earlier this month. As she listened, she became even more concerned about its planned offshore gas field and pipeline. I feel like they don't really care about what we think and feeling about this threat to our home. Because I felt like that they were more or less wooing us, you know, sweetening us up. They were talking about going into partnership or doing stuff with the Plungin people. Was there a suggestion that they would be helping to pay for things? Like were they? Yes, yes, there was. In its environment plan application, Santos said there is a low to medium risk a condensate oil spill could pollute waters from the Tiwi Islands to Indonesia and harm endangered dolphins, whales and sharks. It would try to prevent this by building high integrity wells and quickly respond to any spill. Therese Burke says that information wasn't given by Santos at the meeting. We did ask what will happen if there's a, some kind of oil spill. Brett was assuring us that they only used this very light oil, which would not have much effect on the marine life. Santos had started drilling the Barossa field after getting federal government approval, but was required to stop and redo consultations after the Tiwis won a federal court case, which found the first round was inadequate. Naish Gon from the Environment Centre thinks the new consultations were also inadequate and Santos should have revealed that dolphins died after a condensate spill at its WA Varanus Island facility last year. I was concerned that Santos were minimising the potential risks and impacts. I'm shocked that Santos did not disclose this spill at the meetings they had on the Tiwi Islands. The ABC asked Santos whether it revealed environmental risks or offered inducements. It replied with a statement saying 400 people welcomed the company at positive sessions with high engagement. It said many community members were pleased Santos came onto the islands and are looking forward to more consultations. Therese Burke says some Tiwis, including her nephew, were satisfied. 
but she worries the project will go ahead, even if a majority of locals oppose it. I said, is all this thing that you're saying you want to do with the Chiwi people, is this your means of getting to your end result? Australian National University Professor Sarah Bice has been researching consultation processes with communities where there are foregone conclusions on projects across Australia. She says there's widespread realisation among governments and companies that consultation needs to improve and that this can prevent delaying protest and court action. In our research, we've seen that there's more than $30 billion of project losses contributed to by stakeholder opposition, by community protests. She says being honest about what changes are possible is most important. We recently surveyed over 5,000 members of the Australian public and the majority have said what they want to know most is what can be changed in a project and what's locked in. And in project world, we call this negotiables and non-negotiables. And many, many times community members enter consultation without really knowing what genuinely can be changed and what cannot. Tony Clark is the chair of the Consultants Peak Body, the International Association for Public Participation. Different governments have different views about engagement, but there is clearly a very significant trend of of more increased engagement. And certainly, we as the peak body, we're really lobbying governments to get engagement embedded into legislation because good engagement equals good outcomes. He also thinks honesty is the best strategy. I think where there's a lot of falling down is there's a lot of fear that we know people aren't going to like this. Let's not go out and ask them. And if we do, we're going to get hit. And I think there just has to be some acknowledgement that it's really important to go and say, we are looking at putting this facility here for the following reasons. It is unlikely that this will change, but we want to understand what the concerns are. So setting the expectation that we want to find out where we want to put something with the full knowledge you're going to put it there, it's not an honest, authentic or genuine way to do things. And that's where you need to start to manage things. Be honest. That was International Association for Public Participation Chair Tony Clark, ending that report by Jane Barden. It's time to find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, we're joined by Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. And uh, let's start with some news that I'm sure a lot of people um, on the near the east coast of Australia and countries like Vanuatu and Solomon Islands are watching very closely. And that is a tropical depression, which has now developed into a cyclone, Cyclone Judy, I understand it's called. Can you tell us more about that? I can, yeah. So the North Islands of Vanuatu are expected to experience some damaging winds uh, and heavy rain uh, today as Tropical Cyclone Judy uh, forms over the Northern Islands. So like you said, Tropical Cyclone Judy, it's been named, and a red alert's actually been issued for Torba, Panama, Sanmar provinces, uh, and there's also alerts out for Malampa, Shefa, and Tafaya as well. So that basically means you must stay inside. Do not do not go outside your house uh, if you can avoid it. Um, flash flooding and uh, high rough seas are in, are in imminent uh, and people should avoid travelling by boat uh, if possible as well. And do we know where it's currently tracking, how how intense it's supposed to get? Yeah, so as of 2am last night, it was tracking north of Vanuatu as a cate- uh, Category 2 at about 35 kilometres an hour. Uh, it's expected to hit the northern islands of Vanuatu, the, so the places I just mentioned, at around midday today before potentially intensifying uh, to a Category 3 by tomorrow uh, over Port Vila. 
Oh, gosh. Well, that is um, a concerning, but a Category 3, I guess um, things will hopefully stay at that level and don't exceed that. And, of course, if, if anyone is in the um, danger zones there, you mentioned the provinces, particularly those northern provinces which are most at risk, Toba, Panama, um, and Sanma provinces, which have that red alert issued, um, do keep in um, checking your National Disaster Management Office. They've got regular updates through that um, website either on Facebook or online or if you if you can't access the internet of course you can call it's a double two six double nine is the local number there to access the management office and they can tell you exactly what needs to be done but of course this is cyclone season you know the islands are well well prepared um, particularly in Vanuatu over what that means but always important to be cautious take the risks as you said um, Kyle um, you know prevent or minimize your time outdoors. If you are in low-lying areas, um, do consider if it is safe to do so to um, head head up further um, a highland so that you won't be uh, struck as bad as it could be. So all the best um, for the people in Vanuatu. Um, now let's head to New Caledonia. We've been following those shark attacks, the shark bites there um, for so quite some time. It unfortunately, did take the life one one of the shark attacks um, of an Australian tourist. But now we've got some understanding about the outcome of that campaign to get rid of the sharks, I guess, in Noumea. Um, what's the outcome there? Yeah, that's right. So the city of Noumea has just completed what it what it has called a harvest, uh, which has claimed the life of uh, several large sharks, uh, the ones uh, believed to have, uh, to have been at fault with those attacks and the ones believed to be most dangerous. So this is reported by uh, French TV. And so this campaign, it was it was being touted as a safety campaign, uh, which wrapped up yesterday. It had been going since January, and it saw the shooting of 17 bulldog uh, and tiger sharks. And uh, and like you said, that follows those two attacks, uh, which occurred both of which occurred in less than a month. Mm, and also a, a near miss, I understand, of, of one, one of the attacks as well. Um, if I remember correctly there. Um, and uh, do we know, because uh, do we know what the outcome is? Have they prevented any further attacks through this? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the last one's probably still so fresh, isn't it? But uh, that, that's obviously the plan with this campaign. What we do know is wa- swimming and water activities are still prohibited at all beaches. So it's been that way now for probably a fortnight. So that has been extended while this campaign was uh, uh, was being undertaken. Um, what's interesting is, is the remains of that man was killed was, were actually found found uh, in a bull shark, um, you know, hence, hence probably, you know, the, the, I guess what they think is the, the necessity of this campaign. But uh, no, it'll be interesting to see, yeah, what, what comes from it and if indeed that, that is going to make beaches safer. Yes, yes. As you said, the, the, it is still, um, uh, you're not allowed to swim in those beaches still. They do have um, uh, yeah, barriers up and, and telling people not to go there. Um, and it is controversial, this culling campaign that New Caledonia is doing. We, we recently spoke to Professor Eric Kluwer, who um, had his concerns that this sort of blanket um, campaign to, to kill the sharks actually doesn't um, get to the shark that or that doesn't efficiently get to the shark that perhaps is behind all the attacks. So very interesting to see what what that means um, for the people in New Caledonia, if they are completely behind this, or if they do indeed feel safer now that these 17 sharks are, are out of their waters. Um, and now let's head to some uh, sporting news. The World 7 Series has wrapped up in Los Angeles, and I understand Fiji is back in Olympic contention. They were sort of outside of those that top four spot. 
What, what is the change now? They are. So they're back in the top four uh, of right. the World Rugby 7 Series after finishing third uh, in, LA, in LA yesterday. So they now sit currently uh, on fourth, so right on the border there on 84 points, uh, two points behind Argentina and South Africa. So if the Olympics started today, essentially they they would be there. They, um, they had a really good tournament as well. They... Probably unlucky not to win, not to have played off for gold in some point. Uh, in some ways, they edged out Australia twenty-one to nineteen yesterday to claim that bronze medal. It was the second time they'd beaten Australia in the tournament, uh, and all with four debutants uh, as well. So they also they also beat South Africa, who's currently above them. They also had a big win over Japan. They only just lost to Argentina in that semi-final uh, semi-final yesterday, who went on to lose to New Zealand in the final, who still sit uh, well and truly uh, atop the table there. Yes, um, a very interesting uh, outcome there, and I'm sure a lot of people are celebrating. But is there a chance that they might be kicked out again and lose their chances at Olympic? Oh, there's a ch- there's a chance. The uh, the next series is about a month away, and I think uh, I think the I think the last series marked the halfway point. So still a little bit of football to play. Um, worth pointing out as well that uh, Samoa have unfortunately now dropped out of the top four, so they've dropped to fifth uh, after entering the tournament in third. So let's hope they can uh, rack up a few wins uh, in the coming months as well. Yes, yes. So I guess it is still anyone's game, or at least that spot at the Olympics is still up in the air. So we wish um, both those teams the very best. Well, nice to see two Pacific uh, sides play in the Olympics would be um, a great outcome. Fiji is the uh, Olympic gold medalist. We'll definitely be breathing a uh, side indeed, relief. Indeed, indeed. I, yes, I remember some some talks talking with some players saying that there was a lot of pressure on them mm. to to perform during the these um, this series because of their um, yeah Olympic glory. But um, hopefully they can deal with the pressure now <laughs> that they are, do have a place at least for the moment uh, in the Olympics. Um, Kyle, thank you for those stories. Thank you, Pranka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. And do get in touch if you have a story that you want us to dig into. You can find us at ABC Pacific. But we do have more stories for you coming up. I'm very interested about this one. We've got an author of a new book who's actually been analysing the similarities and differences, of course, between blackbirding. This was this highly exploitative exploitative practice in the late 1800s where um, uh, people would, would, through trickery and otherwise bring Pacific Islanders to Australia to work on sugar and cane fields and, and cotton fields as well. And the the comparison is between modern day work on these farms, particularly with uh, seasonal work and Pacific Islanders. What are the differences? What are the similarities? We'll be finding up very soon. And just after the short break, we'll see what the potential is to have electric ferries running us around the islands. That's coming up soon. Tune in to SBS Samoa News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoa News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan-speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoa News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in the Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. My name is Priyanka Srinivasan. This is Pacific Beat. In the push to make public transportation cleaner and greener, we often hear about the efforts to roll out electric vehicles to replace fossil fuel burning cars and buses. 
But what about the ferries that ply the close coastlines, harbours and rivers of our island nations? Nick Grimm is in Sydney and he took a look at the push for battery-powered vessels to replace existing fleets. The ferry to depart from side A is the best three When it comes to the daily commuter, ferry ride can be hard to beat. Well, if this is public transport, it's probably the best in the world. I mean, it feels like you're on holiday every day if you're travelling on something like this. It's a privilege to live in a city where you've got that option. We, we really enjoy just sitting on them and enjoying watching the world go by on them. Yeah, I've tried the ferries quite a bit. I think it's wonderful. I mean, from from a visitor's point of view, the fact that there is so much easily accessible public transport around here is fantastic. Um, there's so many of them and they're so fast, I can't believe it. It hasn't exactly been plain sailing, though, for ferry services in the harbour city of late. In the dock, the latest Sydney ferry facing... Questions. Sydney's new manly ferries have been forced out of service indefinitely after repeated... And just last week, the New South Wales government torpedoed its search for a new fleet of Parramatta River ferries, announcing no contract would be awarded and that a new tender process might be launched instead. And as ageing fleets need updating... Ferry fans like these think the solution is obvious. You know, it would be good to see something that's very cutting edge and responding to the new energy technologies. Yeah, I'd vote electric. Why? Uh, just that's the way the world has to move. More and more electric cars are being sold, so why not ferries? They're used all over northern Europe. Denmark have got lots of electric ferries. So on short-haul, short-hop ferries such as these, why not? And that's a question some boat builders are also asking. Michael Eglin is the CEO of EV Maritime, a company currently building two battery-powered ferries for the New Zealand city of Auckland. He argues Australia should be doing the same. In some respects, the biggest obstacles aren't really technical ones. The challenge is that it's a quite a different commercial model in that electric ferries, like electric cars, cost a lot more to buy, a lot more to build, but they cost a lot less to run. And so doing that then in the public sector, especially when you've then got a kind of a existing public transport contracts in place and budgets and all the rest of it, it can take a bit to kind of drive that through the system. Currently, two battery-powered ferries operate on Sydney Harbour but are only suitable for smaller capacity routes. In contrast, the Tasmanian shipbuilder Incat is developing a battery-powered car ferry capable of carrying more than 2,000 passengers to service a route between Argentina and Uruguay. Everything is transitioning very quickly to alternative fuels, methanol, biofuels, or, but mainly batteries. So uh, we're learning on our feet. But Incat CEO Tim Burnell fears Australia will miss out on an opportunity to be a world leader in battery electric vessels if ferry operators here replace existing fleets with more diesel-powered craft. Even so, he's looking forward to the voyage ahead. The future is bright for the marine transport industry or certainly the ferry industries in Australia. Our routes, certainly Sydney Harbour, even Port Phillip Bay, Brisbane, even Hobart have got the perfect geography to support electric ferries and um, I'm looking forward to see where we go. That was a CEO of Incat Tasmania, Tim Burnell, and Nick Grimm was the reporter for that story. You're listening to Pacific Beat. 
Back in the 1800s, tens of thousands of Pacific Islanders were taken to Australia to work on plantations, often by force or trickery. They worked picking cotton or harvesting sugar in a practice known as blackbirding. Now, more than a century later, thousands of Pacific Islands come to Australian farms as seasonal workers to pick fruits and vegetables. It's that comparison that is central to a new book titled Pacific Islands Guest Workers in Australia, The New Blackbirds. Co-author of the book, Kirsty Petru from Griffith University, joins us this morning. Welcome to Pacific Beat, Kirsty. Hi, Priyanka. Thanks for having me on this morning. Um, very interesting, this um, book of yours, looking at blackbirding in the past and, and seasonal working now. Now, there have been critics who do see comparisons between the two schemes, but w- what did your studies actually reveal? So there are certain structural similarities that are quite obvious when you think about um, the what we refer to in the book as the two phases of labour mobility to Australia, the first phase being blackbirding and the second phase being these contemporary guest worker schemes. So over both eras, um, workers have been employed in similar types of, types of work on farms, um, sometimes in sugarcane industries. Um, in both phases, Vanuatu has been a major labour supplier and men have been the main participants in both phases of labour mobility. Um, in both instances, it's been Australian labour shortages or perceived labour shortages and labour needs that motivated the use of Pacific Islander workers. Um, in both instances, employment has generally been linked to a particular employer. In the case of the contemporary guest worker schemes, um, visas are tied to employers. Uh, in both instances, workers have had to travel to Australia alone. Now, that is sc- scheduled to change. Um, as of July this year, the Australian government is going to start rolling out and trialling family accompaniment for certain Pacific workers. Mm-hmm. And, of course, up until this point, um, social reproduction, which is the looking after children, looking after the elderly and so forth, has taken place entirely in the Pacific Island countries. But there are also some really important differences. So right from the start, uh, the what was the seasonal worker program and what's now the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme or the PALM scheme has had safeguards and protections built into it for the workers. Um, so, of course, these don't always work and we do see these media stories about cases of exploitation and so forth. But the intention has always very much been that the workers should be entitled to the same wages, um, the same work rights and so forth as Australian citizens. Mm. And another really important um, difference has been the aid focus of the contemporary schemes. So whereas in the past it was just a matter of um, trying to get workers fill labour shortages, there's been a very deliberate focus to try and ensure and ensure that the workers in the Pacific Island countries are benefiting from their participation in the scheme. So in short, yeah, there are some similarities, but there are also some very significant and very important differences between the two phases of labour mobility. And why? Because it's it's this difficult thing to discuss, isn't it? Blackbirding is is a dirty past in Australia. It has been likened to, you know, slavery of its time, though there are some differences between the slavery that we see in other countries. And, you know, there has been a lot of criticism about what that means about Australia's, you know, ongoing historical relationship with Pacific Islanders. But then if we look 
as you outlined, uh, the the scheme today with seasonal work, uh, there are a lot of benefits and there are a lot of people in the Pacific on these islands that want to come to Australia to work, considering the economic and, and you know, labour mobility advantages that it gives. So what, you know, how how is it possible, particularly yourself as a researcher, to balance both those things? Can we see that the history of blackbirding has informed what we see today with seasonal work? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It is a tricky balance to try and look at um, what are the potential negative consequences of participating in labour mobility and weigh these against um, all of the benefits that we do see accruing. And sometimes it's something that you an equation that you can't actually um, work out. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some excellent work by Victoria Stead, uh, who's a researcher at Deakin, that considers some of these questions of how have our histories of colonial histories of engagement with the Pacific informed um, current thinking about uh, the labour mobility schemes. But I would say um, policies around labour mobility weren't designed with these pasts in mind. They're much more a reflection of um, changed thinking about how best to deliver aid and development uh, to Pacific Island countries or other countries around the world. So whereas once upon a time it was considered best practice to deliver large amounts of money to, say, a partner country government Mm -hmm. and the government in, say, a Pacific Island country would set up a development scheme, whether it be education building hospitals, whatever, and that was seen as the best way to do development. Around the early 2000s, perhaps a little bit earlier, um, there was this idea that actually maybe the remittances, which is the money that Pacific Islanders or whatever migrant worker you're talking about sends back to their home country, maybe this is a better way to deliver development. So rather than being a top-down system, the money was seen to go directly to those most in need who were thought to be the best place to meet their needs, whether they want to invest in education, in medicine, in clothing, in whatever they needed. Um, So it was seen as a better bottom-up approach Mm. to um, delivering development. And we saw this in the revival of guest worker schemes around the world. So around the 1980s, they'd fallen out of vogue. By the early 2000s, most OECD countries had their own guest worker scheme. Obviously, there are contextual differences um, as to where they were bringing workers in from, the industries they were being employed in. Um, But it really has been a global phenomenon and not just something that Australia has done on its own. Mm, very interesting because, Kissy, as you as you're talking, I keep on you know having this challenge in my brain as well because when you do talk about that bottom up approach, you can see the benefits of of this sort of labour mobility with seasonal work. But then I wanted to pick up on something that you said earlier is that you know it was mainly you know Pacific Islanders that were fulfilling both the, the blackbirding of yesterday yesteryear and also the seasonal work today, and particularly people from Vanuatu. Did you, in your research, look at why that might be the case, why Pacific Islanders and particularly people from Vanuatu are are filling these positions on Australian farms? Um, So in the case of 
the palm scheme, it's very much what we call a um, first mover advantage. So the Australian guest workers scheme started um, about two years after New Zealand's counterpart recognised seasonal employer scheme. And there'd been a very deliberate decision in New Zealand to use workers from Vanuatu in their trial because there was a smaller diaspora population of New Vanuatu as opposed to, say, Samoans or Tongans. And there was a belief that because they had less connections in New Zealand, it was less likely that the New Vanuatu would abscond or run away from the scheme and try and become visa overstayers. And employers thought that there was more likelihood that the scheme would succeed um, if it wasn't perceived as leading to other issues with people wanting to overstay their visas. So it was really successful in New Zealand to use the Nivanuatu workers. And when Australia adopted its own scheme, there were a few countries that were initially involved in the trial. Vanuatu was one of them. And because they had been so successful in New Zealand, it sort of carried over to Australia as well. Mm, very interesting. And, and I also want to ask, Kirsty, you, you use in your book and also um, as we're talking today, the term guest work to describe this labour mobility, to describe something that we'd call seasonal work, I think. Why is that term used, guest worker? What does that mean? Uh, so it actually it comes from Germany in the 1950s and 1960s um, when they were bringing in a lot of workers um, post-World War II to help with the um, reconstruction. So it's really just a bit of a more global, broader term than seasonal worker. And it also captures the fact that um, some of the work that Pacific Islanders are coming to Australia to do is no longer seasonal. So with um, what was the Pacific Labor Scheme, but is now the Palm Long um, Scheme, we've got people coming in for several years, not just for a few months. And so it's uh, non-seasonal employment as well as seasonal. Uh, okay. Yes, that makes sense. I guess seasonal workers is not quite the right term anymore. Um, if you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat, we're speaking to Kirsty Petru from Griffith University. We're talking about her new book, Pacific Islands Guest Workers in Australia, The New Blackbirds. It is a question that's being asked and we're just going through what uh, Australia's past history with blackbirding and what the similarities are with the current seasonal work, guest work, labour mobility uh, programs of today. Now, when we talk about blackbirding, I think the big thing that the big criticism around that um, program, as I said, it, it has been likened to modern or to the slavery of the yesteryear, Australia's slave, slave past. And with that comes accusations of, of racism, of course, of Australia, you know, racially using Pacific Islanders in their plantations, doing this work that can be very labour and physically uh, intensive. Similar criticisms have been made towards the modern day seasonal program. But as we've been outlining today, Kirsty, there have been a lot of benefits as well. Do you think those claims of racism stack up uh, after doing your research for your book? Um, look, I don't think there's outright racism in the use of Pacific Islander workers. Um, certainly it's not something that would have been at the forefront of people's minds um, this, when it, the scheme was designed. Um, it's really been spoken about as um, 
Australia doing something to help the Pacific in many ways as part of the, the step up. Um, and I think what we do need to remember is that these schemes are not just Australia helping the Pacific, but the Pacific Islanders are making a really valuable contribution to Australia through their work here. They're not only supporting, um, say, farmers when they're living in local communities, they're also part of these communities. They're contributing socially, they're spending money in local stores and so on and so forth. Mm. So I think something that we need to do when we talk about these schemes is to really shift from speaking about them as something that Australia is doing to help the Pacific as a more mutually beneficial arrangement. The Pacific is helping Australia, and this is something that was really hammered home during the COVID-19 pandemic mm. when borders shut and migrant workers were no longer arriving in Australia. Um, they make very valuable contributions to the Australian economy and to Australian society. And um, this is something that's often forgotten when we do talk about these schemes. Yes, that's true. And particularly in, I guess, media, we, we do tend to focus on, on perhaps the negative um, aspects and, and some of the claims of exploitation that do come up. But as you rightly say, Kirsty, there are many, many um, you know, evidence of, of these benefits that you're outlining there. What what comes out of your research? I mean, you've been comparing blackbirding of the past with Pacific Islands guest workers now. What has come out of it? Is there a way to perhaps strengthen the program of today? I think there are many ways to strengthen the program. And I, I think um, it's been an ongoing process as well, uh, figuring out what works and what doesn't. There are some things that... Um, one of the things we did in the book was to look at different guest worker schemes, um, not only just within Australia, but around the world and over time. And there are certain issues that do tend to recur um, around things like accommodation issues and so forth. Um, so I, I think there is always ways to continue trying to improve the scheme. Um, accommodation, which I've just mentioned, has been an ongoing issue Um since it started and sometimes these issues like with accommodation can be a case of well whose job is it really to do that should the employers be investing in that should the Australian government who should we be looking to to do this uh, as numbers of workers have increased as well so recently um, there's been some promotion around the fact that there are now 35,000 Pacific Islanders working in Australia so as those numbers have increased um, the contexts in which people are working and so forth um, have changed a lot. And so we do need to adjust um, and ensure that things that maybe worked when they were, say, 5,000 workers in Australia are still working when there are 35,000 people here. Mm, yes, good points there. Um, Kirsty, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you, Priyanka. It's been great speaking with you. That was Kirsty Petru, co-author of the new book, Pacific Islands Guest Workers in Australia, The New Blackbirds. You can find the abstract and an intro to that book online. And with that, that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Thank you so much for your company this Tuesday morning. If you want to catch up on any of our stories, do head to our website. That's ABC Pacific. You can find it all there. And also, you can find us on all your social media, on, on Instagram, not Instagram, actually, Facebook, Twitter. You can find ABC News on Instagram, though. Till next time. <laughs>